we have an absolutely extraordinary attitude in our culture and in various other cultures, high civilizations, to the new member of human society. Instead of saying frankly to children, how do you do, welcome to the human race, we are playing a game and we are playing by the following rules. We uh, want you to, we want to tell you what the rules are so that you'll know your way around and uh, when you've understood what rules we're playing by, when you get older you may be able to invent better ones. But instead of that, we still retain an attitude to the child that he is on probation. He's not really a human being. He's a candidate for humanity. And uh, therefore, to preserve the role of parent or to preserve the role of teacher, you have to do what they do in the Arthur Murray School of Dancing, which is that they string you out. They don't tell you all the, the story about dancing because if they tell you, you'll learn in a few weeks and go away. And you'll know it, but instead they want to keep you on. And in just this way, we have a whole system of preparation of the child for life, which always is preparation and never actually gets there. In other words, we have a system of schooling which starts with grades. And we get this little creature into the thing with a kind of, come on, kitty, kitty, kitty. And we get it always preparing for something that's going to happen. So you go into nursery school as preparation for kindergarten. You go into kindergarten as preparation for first grade. And then you see you go up the grades till you get to high school. And then comes a time when uh, maybe if we can get you fascinated enough with the system, you go to college. And then when you go to college, if you're smart, you get into graduate school and stay a perpetual student. And go back to be a professor and just go round and round in the system. But in the ordinary way, they don't encourage quite that. They want you after graduate school or after graduation, commencement as it's called, beginning to get out into the world with a capital W. And so, you, you, you know, you've been trained for this and now you've arrived. But when you get out into the world at your first sales meeting, they've got the same thing going again because uh, they want you to make that quota. And if you do make it, they give you a higher quota. And come along about the 45 years of age, maybe you're vice president. And you suddenly it dawns on you that you've arrived. <laughs> With a certain sense of having been cheated. Because uh, it is just the same as things, life feels the same as it always felt. And you are conditioned to be in desperate need of a future. So the final goal that this culture prepares for us is called retirement. When you will be a senior citizen, and you will have the wealth and the leisure to do what you've always wanted, but you will at the same time have impotence, uh, a rotten prostate, and uh, false teeth, and no energy. So, uh, all the whole thing from beginning to end is a hoax. Uh, and furthermore, some other aspects of the hoax, just for kicks. Uh, <laughs> you... Uh, are involved, uh, by and large, in a very strange business system which divides your day into work and play. Work is something that everybody does and you get paid to do it because nobody could care less about doing it. In other words, it is so abominable and boring that you can get paid for doing it. 
And the object of doing this is to make money. And the object of making money is to go home and enjoy the money that you've made. When, when you've got it, you see, you can buy pleasure. And the, the, this is a complete fallacy. Money never can buy pleasure. Because all pleasures depend upon not putting down a symbol of power, money, but upon disciplines. In other words, now, in Sausalito, where I live, uh, we have pier after pier full of fine boats, motor cruisers, sailing boats, all sorts of things, which nobody ever uses. Because they've been bought on the uh, falling for the ad line that if you buy this thing, you will have pleasure, you will have status, you will have something or other. But then they suddenly discover that having a boat requires the art of seamanship, which is difficult but rewarding. Therefore, nobody has time for it, and all they do with the boats is have cocktail parties on them at the weekend. <laughs> and uh, in, in myriads of ways, you see, you go home, you, we're the wealthiest people in the world, and you would think that uh, having earned your money and go home, uh, you would have an orgy and uh, a great banquet and so on, but nobody does. They eat a TV dinner, which is just a warmed-over airline food, and... Uh, then they spend the evening looking at an electronic reproduction of life which is divided from you by a glass screen. You can't touch it, you can't smell it, it has no color, except uh, maybe if you're very wealthy it has color. But uh, by and large it doesn't and you look at this thing and you don't, you, you have a strange feeling you see that the whole procession of grades that was leading to something in the future, to that goody, that gorgeous, galoptious goody that was lying at the end of the line, it never quite turns up. And this is because from the beginning we condition our children to a defective sense of identity. And this, I think, is the most important feature in the whole thing, that a child grows into our culture, and as I, I repeat, this is not only Western culture, it's equally true in Japan, <coughs> an area of which I can speak with some first-hand knowledge. Uh, we condition the child in a way that sets the child a life problem which is insoluble, and therefore attended by constant frustration. And as a result of this problem being insoluble, it is perpetually postponed to the future. So that one lives, one is educated to live in the future, and one is not ever educated to live today. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, the philosophy of carpe diem, let us drink today for tomorrow we die, and not make any plans. What I am saying is, that making plans for the future is of use only to people who are capable of living completely in the present. Because when you make plans for the future and they mature, you are, if you can't live in the present, you are not able to enjoy the future for which you have planned. Because you will have in you a kind of syndrome a, uh, whereby happiness consists in promises and not in direct and immediate realizations. So long as you feel that tomorrow it will come. You see, on a dollar bill, it always says promise to pay. It's a promissory note. And uh, nobody ever can come across. 
because the promise is tomorrow and as is the, if we say in common speech tomorrow never comes but everything is based on the idea you see that you will get it tomorrow and you can enjoy yourself today so long as tomorrow looks bright but Confucius once said a man who understands the Tao in the morning can die contentedly in the evening that is to say if you have ever lived one complete moment you can be ready to die you can say well that was it that was the good that I've had it you see but if you never lived that complete moment death is always a guy who like comes into a bar at two o'clock in the morning and says time gentlemen please and you say oh please one more drink not yet because you haven't really have the feeling that you ever had it that you ever got there now then the main the main factor in this kind of conditioning seems to me to be as I said the way in which we give children a sense of identity and in this respect we do something extraordinarily odd we define a person consider this for a moment this word person Harry Emerson Fosdick once wrote a book called how to be a real person and this in translation means how to be a genuine fake because the word person means a mask the persona the mask worn by actors in Greco-Roman drama which was a megaphone mouthed mask so that through which persona the sound goes and so at the beginning of a play script you will see the dramatis personae the persons of the drama that is to say the list of the masks that the actors are going to wear but the word has so fallen from its original use that to be a person has come to mean your real identity your true sincere honest self the person and we say of someone then he's a real person that means he's genuine but we have confused you see the individual organism with the person with that is to say its role and we have defined the role of the person in such a way that it condemns everybody so defined to perpetual frustration now how is this so when you are a child you your parents your peers your teachers your uncles and aunts are very anxious to define you and what they are going to tell you is that you are a free agent you are responsible that is to say you are an independent first cause you are an origin of actions and thoughts and feelings and we can praise you or blame you for what you do and above all we require of you that you love us you love your parents you love your brothers and sisters as Fred said uh, a child is not allowed to say to let that baby sister go back where it came from because that is not nice all nice children love their brothers and sisters and their parents not of course because we tell you to do so but because you would want to do it yourself you see now here what's going on you are required and commanded to do 
certain things which will be appreciated only if you do them voluntarily. <coughs> now, you see, when your, ex your identity is defined by society, you cannot resist it. You don't have the knowledge, you don't have the wisdom, you don't have the resources to understand that something's being put over on you. You cannot but help believe the definition of you as a free agent. But you believe yourself to be a free agent as a result of not being free. That is to say, of being uh, uh, hopelessly unable to resist society's identification of you. So, in, in the whole sense of our personality, there is a contradiction. And that is why the sense of ego, of being oneself, is simultaneously a sense of frustration. The feeling of I-ness, so far as most people are concerned, is a feeling of tension between the eyes and behind them. Uh, Trigant Barrow, a remarkable man, did some studies about uh, two kinds of awareness, which he called ditension and cotension. In di ditentive is the normal kind of awareness that we have of being a skin-encapsulated ego, of being separate from the environment, and of confronting an external objective world of which we are the independent observer. And this myth, he said, uh, goes hand in hand with a physical state, which is a state of tension between the eyes. Then he defined cotension as another form of awareness, which you might call a certain kind of openness, in which you realize that the external world is just as much you as anything inside your skin. And that you are not something that comes into this world on probation and doesn't really belong. This is, you see, the attitude that we foster in the child. But that you are something not that comes into the world, but comes out of it. In the same way as a flower comes out of a plant, or a fruit comes out of a tree. That you are an expression. You, as a human being, are a symptom of nature. And that you really belong there, and that, uh, furthermore, your actual self what is finally and fundamentally you is not a separate and lonely part of the world, but the real you is the world itself, everything that there is, expressing itself as this particular organism here and now, and of course as you look across the room, as all these other organisms in there here and now, we are all tits on the same sow, if I may put it so crudely. Now, you can say to a girl in our culture, darling, you're absolutely gorgeous. You're so beautiful. And she says, how like a man. All you think about is bodies. I may be beautiful, but that's my parents gave me my body. But I want to be admired for myself and not for my chassis. And this poor girl is a chauffeur. She's alienated from her body. And she doesn't uh, take any credit, doesn't assume any responsibility for being what she is physically, and this is, of course, as much true of men as of women. It is a common cultural attitude. We say, I have a body. We don't say, I am a body. We feel a very sharp distinction, in other words, between our consciousness, which is a kind of focused attention, together with 
all those actions that we are able to perform voluntarily on the one hand and on the other hand everything both within us and outside us that seems merely to happen to us. Consider for a moment breathing. Do you breathe or are you breathed? You can feel it either way. If you become conscious of breathing, you get the sense that you are doing it in the same way as thinking or walking. But if you forget about it, it goes on. And you don't have to do it at all. That is why breathing exercises are fundamental in all meditation practices in the Orient. Because you can understand through breathing and through the experience of breathing that there really is no differentiation between the involuntary experience and the voluntary experience. But when you make set up game rules whereby you identify all that you do voluntarily with you and all that happens involuntarily with the other, with what happens to you, and then you put a gulf between these things, not realizing, and this is the secret that is never given away, that self and other are inseparable.